And we're going to pick up right at the pivot chapter of Ezekiel chapter 33. Now, I say that chapter 33 operates as a pivot for two reasons. The first is, as we'll see, it's in this chapter that a survivor of the sacking of Jerusalem will make it into the colony of Babylon and announce that Jerusalem has fallen. As you may remember, this is what Ezekiel has been talking about for 32 chapters, pointing to this event And so, if you will, with the arrival of this, as well as the affirmation of of Ezekiel as a prophet, um, this first chapter comes to a close. But it's not just that he moves on to other things here. There's also a thematic pivot starting in this chapter. Now that judgment has happened and come completely, Ezekiel begins to talk about what happens next. In other words, his message transitions from a message of judgment to a message of hope, from a message of condemnation to a message of forgiveness. It pivots here in chapter 33, and as we will see, even where judgment shows up after this point, it will be on the other nations because in their judgment will come Israel's deliverance. So let's pick up here in chapter 33, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Speak to your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make them their watchmen, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet, and warns the people, then, if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. Now, if this sounds strangely familiar, it's because this parable, this hypothetical situation of a watchman and his audience, uh, we've already encountered back in chapter 3 at the very beginning of Ezekiel's ministry. But there is a significant and important difference here. The first time this parable is given, it's given privately to Ezekiel. Here he says, speak to your people, Ezekiel. Tell them this story. And that doesn't uh, just change the audience, if you will. It also changes the emphasis. With Ezekiel, as you may remember, the point clearly was, Ezekiel, you are the watchman. I will hold you accountable for if you tell the people what is coming or not. But here, Ezekiel's been faithful and consistent in that for uh, almost a decade worth of years. He has carried this message, calling out from the watchtower, judgment is coming. Here, instead, this is being put on his audience so that their, the audience sees their own responsibility in this. And so, one option here is the option where Ezekiel gives the message and the people hearing choose not to listen. They go about their business. They laugh and scorn and mock uh, like we can imagine people uh, doing to Noah as he was building this big boat. And so effectively by proclaiming this, Ezekiel is also proclaiming like other judges and prophets had done before him, 
My hands are blood-free. I have been faithful and consistent. This is what Samuel tells his audience as, they, as he retires from a judge, as they replace him, desiring a king with Saul. He says, look back on my life. Have I taken advantage of anyone? Or maybe even a closer one is when Paul speaks with the elders in Ephesus. And he says, day and night, I went from house to house admonishing you and encouraging you. And he says the same thing. He says, my hands are not covered in blood because I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. But there's a second possibility here, verse 6, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Now notice there's one little nuance addition there that's important. No one is going to die for Ezekiel's lack of warning. They're going to die, as it says here, he'll be taken away in his iniquity. It'll be as a response to his own sins. All of this judgment is already deserved. Ezekiel's existence, his calling as a watchman, was evidence of God's mercy, his desire that all would come to repentance. They will still be responsible for that, but he would also require blood at the watchman's hand. He would hold him accountable. Here he continues, verse 7, So you, son of man, I've made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn away from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity. By his, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Now I think at this point, because you may remember Ezekiel was told up front that his audience would be hard-hearted, calcitrant, would not listen. He would not have droves and droves of people responding to his message. I believe this review probably is very encouraging to Ezekiel. It's a reminder that faithfulness is not the same thing as a success metric. His judgment here is uh, in response to a single question. Did you say what I told you to say? Did you carry the message that I gave you? Paul says to the church in Corinth, one sows, another waters, but God gives the increase. Even Paul distanced himself from these things. He knew his role as a messenger, as an apostle, as a missionary, but he separated it from the consequence, from the result. And so Ezekiel's reminded here, almost like a pat on the shoulder, job well done. You have delivered yourself now notice how it continues on here. It builds on this foundation, but it adds a little bit of nuance. So first, it's impending judgment and the responsibility of the watchman. But look at verse 10. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we've wrought away because of them. How then can we live? Okay, and so the idea here is, as people are seeing, remember uh, Jerusalem has been under siege at this point for stretching near a year and a half. As we'll see, Babylon is about four months' journey by foot, maybe even by animal, uh, from Jerusalem. So even with a four-month delay, they know that Jerusalem is in its final days right now. They recognize the significance that the, 
that the temple of God, that the city of God, that the throne of the line of David, that all of this is about to come to an end. And they look at this and they go, all right, this is what we deserve. But then it's almost as if they're saying, it's too much, or what can we even do about it? This is a message of despair. They say, how can we live? What option do we have? But notice verse 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? In other words, even though it seems too late, it's still not too late. The problem is not that the clock is irreversible. The problem, again, is that Ezekiel's audience, their hearts are still turned away from the Lord. He says here, I'm not after your death. I'm after your repentance. He continues here in verse 12, And you, son of man, say to your people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. In other words, being righteous in a significant degree or for a certain amount of time does not give you a free pass or a license for ongoing sin. You can't so fill your bank account with righteous deeds that you can coast for a while and do what you like. You can't take your evil and your righteousness and weigh them in the scales and as long as they tilt one way, it'll be fine. What he says here is what he's interested in right now is now and conversely he says the opposite he says continuing on um, and as for the wickedness of the wicked he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness and the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins and so he says it moves in both directions but notice that's actually a little bit surprising When we read the opening and God basically says there will be consequences for sin, it's surprising that he says then that the wickedest among you, if he turns away from it, will be spared. Do you see the chronological inconsistency there? Current sin weighs heavier on God's heart than past sin. Current righteousness weighs heavier on God's heart than past righteousness. Again, what he's interested in here is repentance. And so the idea is not one of, again, pulling out the scales and weighing our lives in the balance. God is all for forgiveness. He's not willing that any should perish, but that requires turning away. It requires turning back to God. It requires repentance. Verse 13, though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered, but in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what is taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live, not die. Now notice, that's more than just a mea culpa. That's, that's more than just a confession that they were in the wrong. Here we see a complete change in lifestyle, one that even involves restitution. Restoring the pledge means reversing the evil you have done. It's like when Jesus sits at the table of the little tax collector, Zacchaeus. And at the end of the meal, so impacted by Jesus, he stands up and he says, 
I'm going to give back every dime I have stolen and I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor. It's a reversal, not just of behavior, I'm no longer going to rob, but all the way into generosity. And we see the same thing here. So it's not just restitution, but also he walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice. Okay? It's a complete transition to a new way of living. Now remember the context here. Who is Ezekiel talking to? An audience that has very little time, but time they have still. For someone to respond to Ezekiel's message at this moment in the 11th hour is comparable to the thief that hung next to Jesus. Living the life that he lived, one that led directly to crucifixion for his crimes, and while he hangs there in his final breaths, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus assures him that just that will be what happens. And so it really is here, although a message of reminding where the fault is, Right? It's not that God has been inconsistent or inappropriate in his judgment. Their fault is where it's always been, in their unwillingness to turn away from their sins. Again, to emphasize in verse 16, none of the sins he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not just, when it's their own way that is not just. So it doesn't matter if they're sitting in a corner and pouting about God's inconsistency because they were righteous at some point in their life. Or if they're despairing because they've done so much wickedness, how can they change things now? Either way, he says, the injustice is not on me. I'm willing to take the step, but you have to change. You have to respond. Now, those of us with solid Christian instincts know that's where the rub is. And Ezekiel will get there. He'll come up to that point. He'll have happen, uh, he'll preach what needs to happen to his audience, what's already happened to him. All the way back in the beginning where he was laying as a dead man and the spirit came and empowered him. And it was as if we had a new Adam breathed with fresh life. That's a major part of where Ezekiel's going, but, but the repentance that's talking about here is first expressed in desire. And even the desire is lacking. Verse 18, when the righteous turn from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this, which is basically just a way of saying, did I stutter? I am consistent in my judgment, yet you say, verse 20, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to your ways. This is not about your ancestors. This is not about your yesterdays. This is about right now. And so that becomes kind of the final anthem before the pivot. Look at verse 21. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Look at how simple that is. The whole message is just it's over. There's no blow by blow. There's not a longstanding report. There's no exceptions. There's, there's no, you know, uh, silver lining. It's just, it's over. It's done. Now notice verse 22. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came. 
And he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning, so my mouth was open and I was no longer mute. Remember, all the way back at the beginning, Ezekiel was not pleased with being God's messenger. And so God told him that he would be constrained, under constraint, unable to go where he would please, as if his body was tied with ropes, unable to open his mouth as if God had muzzled him, except when God sent him posts, except when God spoke through him. And for the entire duration until the fall of Jerusalem, he's under this form of discipline, learning, you know, like Paul did, that it's hard to kick against the goads. And so here, he comes to the end of that chapter. And I guess you could say at this point, he's finally free. Now, many commentators would suggest that Ezekiel in this whole book, much like we talked about with Jeremiah, is a stand-in for what God wants to do in his audience as a whole. It's not just Israel that's been hard-hearted. Ezekiel was calcitrant as well. Ezekiel goes through discipline and comes out the other side. As I said earlier, Ezekiel encounters the Spirit of God and is made into a new man. The Ezekiel we meet at the end of the book and the one that we started with is not a same person. And so even in this little moment, there's hope for Israel. God's discipline ends. And then, and so appropriately, in verse 23, we get into the and then. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel keep saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land, but we are many. The land is surely given to us to possess. Now I want you to notice here, Ezekiel's going to address two different audiences. The first one are the people who are still hiding out in caves and empty places in the land of Israel proper. Jerusalem is sacked. The fortress cities are destroyed. But it's still a big, open, barren place, and there's a handful of Jews still living within the land of Israel. And so God, at a great distance, prophetically tells Ezekiel the thoughts in their hearts, and the thoughts are basically, Abraham did it once, we can do it again. Remember when Abraham came, he came as just a wanderer, a pilgrim, into a land that was foreignly occupied, and yet he became the possessor of it. See, now the last time, the last time we encountered these people in Israel, they were effectively saying, we are the faithful, that's why we're still here. Remember, Ezekiel's neighbors had all been deported. And so it was easy for them to distance themselves and say, that's the wicked who God brought judgment on. Clearly, we're the faithful because we're left standing. A little bit of a different message now. Now it's just a... just a solid confidence in their own ability. Abraham was only one, and he mastered the land. How much more can us collectively make this work? There's no reference to God. In fact, ironically, Abraham is the wrong mascot for these people. And that's where Ezekiel goes next. Therefore, verse 25, say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat flesh with the blood and lift up your eyes to idols, and shed blood. Shall you then possess the land? See, what they've forgotten is that Abraham was given the land in covenant. And they're covenant breakers. That's why Abraham was given the land. Not because of its ingenuity. Not because of the ease of the land. Not because of, you know, his own stick to 
but because he was called out and graciously called into a relationship with God, one that he kept. Abraham walked in the statutes of God. He obeyed his commands. In fact, amazingly, it tells us in the book of Genesis that Abraham kept all of the laws and statutes and judgments, which is shorthand for the Mosaic law, which doesn't exist for 400 years. But the point is clearly that Abraham was a covenant keeper. In fact, that's why the judgment has come upon Israel right now, because they are covenant breakers. And so as they stay in their posture, their fate is the same. He continues here in verse 26. You rely on the sword. You commit abominations. Each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Shall you thus then possess the land? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword. And whoever's in the open field, I will give to the beast to be devoured. And those who are in the stronghold in the cave shall die of pestilence. Sword, wild beast, and pestilence, those are the covenant consequences. Read the book of Leviticus. Those are the exact tools that God will use to discipline. And he says, I haven't exhausted my artillery yet. He's still driving towards one and only one thing with these people, which is repentance, and he hasn't found it yet. And so he says that he's going to continue what he started. He, there's going to be a mop-up you will. Verse 28, I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and her proud might shall come to an end, and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that none will pass through. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have made a land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations they have committed. So that's one audience. That's one way forward, but we see that door is closed. Those who have made it through the judgment by the skin of their teeth or by, you know, the isolation of the place that they live, God's not finished with them yet. But what about Ezekiel's closest neighbors? What about the ones who were deported years before the destruction of Jerusalem and are now living in Babylon? What about their future? Notice verse 30. As for you, son of man, your people who walk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to one another, each his brother, Come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. Now that's new. This is not Ezekiel's usual day-to-day ministry. What's changed? Everything Ezekiel said would happen has happened. And so now he's the talk of the town. Suddenly Ezekiel, you know, gets invited on the celebrity talk show host. uh, Talk host show. Talk show. There we go. Celebrity talk show. Um, you know, suddenly everybody wants to talk about this guy who rightly named, and they even do it in theological language. They don't see him as some sort of Nostradamus who made the right call or studied the stars. He spoke the word of the Lord. But, verse 31, and they come to you as a people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. He's popular, but he's still not effective. And again, that's no slight on Ezekiel. You see, sometimes we think that a great miracle or the fulfillment of a great prophecy, surely that will be what changes hearts as they finally have to go, God is real. The Bible is true. Jesus is Lord. The Bible is full of evidence to the contrary. Remember that even 
The devil himself knows that God is and shudders, but he does not believe. At the end of Matthew, Jesus steps up on a hill with his disciples and it says, and they saw the crucified one alive. It says many believed, but some doubted. That's Jesus in the flesh, alive after death in front of them. And there's still an unwillingness to believe, still an unwillingness to respond. And there's a real, there's a real warning in here for us. Because again, what does it look like? It looks like people busting down the doors to get to church. It looks like crowded halls and attentive audiences. It looks like applause and celebration of the message you bring. It looks like respect and honor and all of these things, and it is empty. Because they will not do. Jesus asked the same question. You call me Lord. But why do you not do what I, so, what I say? He says, they'll hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, and their heart is set on their gain. In other words, Ezekiel and the God he represents is just a means to an end. They're not sure how they're going to come out on top, but they know where to put the bet. They're not a repentant people. They're a clever people. Verse 32, and behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. In other words, they know that you're talented, but that's it. Ezekiel is just one of the Kardashians, just something to oogle at, something to be admired, but not something to be, you know, responsive to. Verse 33, when this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. That's a little ominous. And it's ominous for two reasons. One, because the destruction of Jerusalem has already come. But this says something else is coming. And the second reason it's ominous uh, is because we don't know what that is. It's not just round two, but we're left going, wait, what? I want to just point out one more thing here before we move on to chapter 34. Whatever it is, Ezekiel the watchman is going to proclaim to the same audience who now respects and believes he is a prophet of God. Will the outcome be different? Right now, we don't have a lot of hope for that. Chapter 34. Now, here he's going to talk about the shepherds of Israel, and there are many passages that compare the leaders of a nation to shepherds. Uh, once we get into the minor prophets, which we'll do in a couple of months, we'll see a couple of those come up again. But most likely, Ezekiel here is, is speaking, being familiar with the prophecies of Jeremiah, his contemporary. Remember, Ezekiel and Jeremiah have the same timeline, except one is in Jerusalem, and now by these days on his way to Egypt, and the other has been in Babylon the whole time. But this opening passage, it looks like it takes Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 4, and just expands it into a full chapter. But in your own time, you can compare it and see 
that there's a clear thing here. Now, maybe God is just giving a consistent message to both his prophets. That's part of it, too. But clearly, Ezekiel's is expanded. It's more thorough. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Now, all three of those things, even though we're, you know, being metaphorically talking about human beings, those are the appropriate aspects of leadership. They should be able to take the benefits of being a shepherd. There is a give and take in their role. The problem is they're just taking. There are benefits to being a leader in Israel, but there is also responsibility. And the sheep here, the, the generic populace, are not for the sake of the leaders. The leaders are supposed to be for the sake of the people. And so they feed themselves, but they do not feed the sheep. Verse 4, the weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. All of these are standard shepherd duties. Right? This is what it looks like to be a shepherd. But they haven't done it. Instead, they've lined their own pockets. They've enjoyed their comfort. In fact, notice what it says here. It says, with force and harshness, you have ruled them. Ruling with force and harshness. That phrase occurs three times in the Old Testament. And the first is in Exodus chapter 1, talking about the slave masters in Egypt. Egypt and Pharaoh ruled over Israel with force and harshness. Also in Leviticus chapter 25, God specifically tells Israel that if they have another Israelite working for them, they are not to treat them with force and harshness. Okay. Why? Because they knew what it was like to be slaves and experience that, and they were supposed to be different now that they were masters. And so, in a sense here, the leaders of Israel have become the leaders of Egypt. They haven't learned the lesson. So, verse 5, they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. And what's, what's the real touch point for that metaphor? The destruction of Israel and Jerusalem with it. Who's, who's primarily to blame? The leaders are. It was their lack of leadership, their lack of care, their abundant selfishness that has led to the destruction of their sheep. Now, what makes that a big deal is verse 6. My sheep, God says, were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. They were not just shepherds of the people of Israel. They were appointed by God to the task. The sheep were not theirs for the fleecing. But they were stewards of what God had given them. And so, verse 7, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves, and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, 
and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. In other words, I'm going to hold you accountable and I'm going to dethrone you. I'm going to remove you from office. You are no longer in charge. But then he goes on further and notice what he does here. For one, he doesn't throw out the system of leadership altogether. Apparently God doesn't believe that absolute power corrupts absolutely. He doesn't believe that the only thing that can happen in leadership is for it to become uh, you know, controlling and manipulative and self-serving. So he doesn't throw out the model, but he does appoint a new shepherd. And what's really interesting here is, as we'll see, the shepherd is both himself, God will be the shepherd of his sheep, and he's also going to appoint a new shepherd, my shepherd David. Let's read verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his own flock when he's among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered, on a day of clouds and thick darkness. In other words, in times of real trouble, God's going to show up, and he's going to bring them back. This is the first of this whole message of hope that we're going to encounter over and over again. The same God who, remember, change the metaphor a little bit, the same God who destroyed the sheep, right? The same God who brought judgment on their sins here is portrayed as someone who's going to make up for the irresponsibility of his leaders, gather them again, and return them to the land. It is interesting to me, it is always interesting to me how the Bible can hold in tension our personal responsibility as well as the external things that impact our life. God doesn't seem to have any difficulty doing the math on that, even though we do. But notice he says that he's going to do this. He's going to gather them back, verse 13, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from their own countries and bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountain of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them justice. Now notice there, suddenly he mentions the fat and the strong. Earlier he talked about the shepherds. That's an office. That's a position. The strong, as we'll see, he's going to compare them to rams and male goats. What's different about them and sheep? The horns, right? They're the strong ones. They're the ones who took their power. Maybe it wasn't an office, but they took their power and they used it for their benefit. And then it mentions here the fat. That's the wealthy. The ones who are doing well, who are well fed on their own. What did they do? Notice here, God doesn't just hold the leadership accountable. But those who have power, strength in the community. Those who have wealth in the community. And he says, there will be justice. Justice is the righting of wrongs. 
Justice isn't just giving a proper sentence. It's the restoration to the way things should be. When the Bible calls us to walk in justice, it means to recognize where injustice is and to rectify it. And God says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set things right. Verse 17, as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between the sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? Notice here, the idea here is that the way these people became fat and strong was at the cost of the health and wholeness of their community. They didn't just get good water, they polluted it for others. They didn't just find good feeding ground, they trampled it before others could enjoy it. Verse 19, And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with the side and shoulder and thrust all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. I mentioned Jeremiah 23, following his uh, condemnation of the shepherds of Israel is the pronouncing of the righteous branch. And here we find him again. Here he's identified as my shepherd David. But do you notice how it's this coexisting thing? God says, I'm going to be the shepherd. And he says, I'm going to raise up David as a shepherd. Remember, David's been dead for hundreds of years at this point. And yet this is a future promise. Verse 24, and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, I have spoken. Now, here he says he's going to fix the leadership problem. And he's both going to do it with his presence and with his provision of my shepherd David. But he's also got to fix the land problem. right? And we've already seen a little bit of reference to that, but look at how he unpacks it here in verse 25. I will make with them a covenant of peace, and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I'll make the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will send down the showers in their season, and they shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hands of those who enslave them. Now, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 26, you find this covenant of peace, and it has all the blessings that are available here, and that's actually where Israel starts. God says, part of my covenant, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the land, and then he says, but if you disobey, and we get all of the consequences and the history that has gotten Israel to this point. In other words, by Ezekiel evoking this here, he's talking about a fresh start, a new beginning, a fresh covenant where God is going to bring about blessings instead of cursing. Verse 28, They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, 
and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them. And they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. Do you remember? Do you remember that language? And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. That's Exodus language. If you read the first 14 chapters of Exodus, to know is the key word. Pharaoh says, why should I send you out? I don't know the Lord. And Moses comes to him again and again and says, so that you may know, so that you may know. God does the same thing with Israel. He delivers them. He makes a distinction between them. He leads them to the Red Sea. Read chapter 14, so that you may know that I am the Lord. And the second part of it is that he will be present. I am the Lord their God with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God, and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord. Now, I don't know why the need for clarifying the type of sheep exists there, but it is worth remembering that the word there for human is Adam. And as we'll see, and as we've seen, if you can remember and think back that far, there is kind of a new Adam paradigm, a fresh start idea that runs through Ezekiel. And so maybe the idea here is, is not a flock of humans, but a flock of Adams. What God had intended coming to pass. Remember, Adam was called not to be alone, but to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth representative rulers of God have dominion on his behalf it's pointing in that direction that's where things are moving now like I said there are many passages that talk about both kings and leaders as shepherds good and bad as well as God as a shepherd of course there's Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want it's hard to read this passage and not hear resonance with that the passage I want us to turn to instead is a conversation that Jesus has with the crowds in John chapter 10. It is very interesting to read this chapter of John in light of the promises that God makes through Ezekiel. Now actually, earlier in John chapter 10, other metaphors are given that are sheep-oriented. And so Jesus starts by saying, uh, saying that he is the door for the sheep. But I want to draw your attention to verse 14. I, Jesus says, am the good shepherd. Why that word good? Because Jesus here is contrasting with the bad shepherds. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Remember what the bad shepherds did? They ate the sheep. Jesus lays his life down for them. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now notice what Jesus does with his authority there. He gives his life. It's the same thing that the New Testament calls husbands to do with their authority. 
to, like Jesus, lay their life down for their bride. In other words, the power that Jesus has, what does he do with it? Paul tells us in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider his equality as something, his equality with God as something to be held on to, but made himself of no reputation, became a man, became a servant, became obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. That's the purpose of power. That's the proper use of authority. Now notice, this claim here, that Jesus is the good shepherd who pleases the Father, is controversial. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon. Is an insane? Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So a little bit later, there's a follow-up conversation. Verse 22, at the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Anointed One, the David, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch, snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And it's at this moment that the Jews pick up stones to stone Jesus to death. But notice it's on the ground that he is the good shepherd, who is one with the Father, who is also the good shepherd. There we have... Jesus' proclamation that he is the one that is promised in Ezekiel. Now, chapter 35, we turn back to judgment, but the judgment is on the Edomites. And because of that, as we'll see, it's not really a judgment being proclaimed for Israel, but a hope. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Mount Seir was the occupied territory of the Edomites, going all the way back to Esau, Jacob's brother. And prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, now notice, we're not told why this is going to happen yet, we're just told the verdict, right? Judgment is coming, a desolation and a waste to you, Mount Seir. Verse 5, why? Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword. Now, Edom and Israel have never been friends. In fact, their ancestors, Jacob and Esau, were never friends. Even in the womb, they fought. Okay? And so it's here a perpetual enmity, but notice here, they gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity and at the time of their final punishment. In other words, Jerusalem, Judea's closest neighbors, just to the southeast, just watched Jerusalem burn. In fact, Obadiah tells us that they cheered. They sold popcorn and drinks. They celebrated it. They pointed out to Babylonians where Judeans were hiding and saying, you missed one over there. They were all about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now pause. 
that wasn't just Babylon's action, was it? It was God's righteous consequences on Israel. And yet here he turns to those who, in a sense, unknowingly, cheered for what God was doing, and he holds them accountable for their schadenfreude. You know the word? It's a German word that, right now, it mostly just describes what we do with Facebook. It means to find joy in the bad things that happen to others. He holds them accountable. In fact, he says, as I live, declares the Lord God, verse 6, I will prepare for your blood. Blood for blood shall pursue you, because you did not hate bloodshed. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it all who come and go, and I will fill its mountain with the slain on your hills and in your valleys and all your ravines. Those slain with the sword shall fall. I will make you a perpetual desolation, and your city shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, Israel is eventually resettled, just as God promises. Edom, not so much. They become such a small tribe that by the time we get to Herod, who is an Idumean, an Edomite, he's pretty much the last of his line. There's just a few of them left at that point. Now notice verse 10, because you said these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and will take possession of them, although the Lord was there. Okay, now two really important things. First, what two nations? Judah and Israel. Now in God's mind, there's only one nation, Israel. It was, it was through their sin that it was divided with Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So why here, why does Edom look on and think about them as two? I think it may be just the most veiled reference to what happened with Esau. You see, Esau was the oldest son of Isaac, the primary inheritor, the firstborn. And so the promises, the land included of Israel, was supposed to go to Esau. In fact, the way that inheritance law was handled in the days of the Old Testament, the old son was given what? The double portion. And so here, Israel and Judah is presented as two, and he thinks, all right, now, now I'm going to get the double portion. But there's a second metaphor going on here. Notice it says, uh, we will take possession of them. Why? Because they're no longer possessed, right? They're empty. They're desolate. What they don't get is just because God kicked out the tenants doesn't mean he's no longer the owner, <laughs> right? That's that last line there although the Lord was there. You think this building is unoccupied, but it is not unowned. Right? Can you imagine how foolish this would be if, if you were a landowner and you had tenants and they took advantage of your property and didn't take care for it and didn't pay their rent and you kick them out and the neighbors across the street go, sweet, we've always wanted to move in there and they move in. Right? They missed a step. And that's the problem with their schadenfreude. They're not rejoicing in God's justice. This has nothing to do with God's glory. They're not even aware of what God is doing. More on that in just a minute. They just see an opportunity. An opportunity for their enemies to get what they feel they deserve and an opportunity for them to benefit themselves in that destruction. Verse 11, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to your anger and envy that you showed because of your hatred against them. Now, again, that's a pressure point, I think, for us today. 
Paul tells us that the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. We need to recognize that we can be on God's side and his enemy. We need to recognize here that he may hold us accountable for our anger and our enemy. And that when we cry, fallen, fallen is Babylon, it may just be excitement that we're the next Babylon and not a cry for God's kingdom to come. He says, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying, they're laid desolate, they're given us to devour, and you magnified yourself against me with your mouth and multiplied your words, saying, I heard it. Thus says the Lord God, while the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. In other words, the last piece of the Edomite puzzle here, of the, the state of Mount Seir, they also felt tremendously safe. They saw this happen to Judah and they thought, won't happen to us. Read Obadiah. God says, you can build your palaces as high as you want and I will bring you down to the ground. Pride was a significant part of their character here. Verse 15, as you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will deal with you and you shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it, and they will know that I am the Lord. Now, why are the Edomites being dealt with here? Mostly as a preface to chapter 36. So let's keep reading. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. Do you, do you get the, the, the resonance there? First, prophesy to Mount Seir. Now prophesy to the mountains of Israel. And say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy said of you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, precisely because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you became the talk and evil gospel, uh, gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills and the ravines and the valleys, the desolate wastes and the deserted cities which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I've spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations, against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt, that they might make its pasture land a prey. In other words, God says here that he's going to bring desolation on the ones who made desolate. And that's not just Edom. They were just a stand-in as a representative of the nations that had come in to crush Israel, which, side note, includes Babylon. God says he's going to do something about all of that. In fact, we see this whole thing pictured up, uh, picked up in Psalm 79. And I wish we had time to read the whole thing. I just want to show you the beginning of it and the end of it. Um, and you can read the rest of it on your own time. I cannot say with confidence, but I always think of the Bible authors as readers of the Bible. And I have to tell you that Psalm 79 strikes me as being written by someone, Asa in this particular case, who is familiar with the words of Ezekiel. First off, he's mourning the same thing that God is speaking of here, the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the nations. Look at verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They've laid Jerusalem in ruins. 
They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of heaven for food and the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. Now you might go, faithful? Is that really an appropriate word to use there? And to some degree it's not, but they are still the people of God. They've poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem and there was no one to bury them. We've become a taunt to our neighbors. Remember that word in Ezekiel? Mocked and derided by those around us. And he continues on there, but notice, notice with me the last few verses there. Specifically, let's pick up. Sorry, I turned the wrong page. Specifically, pick up verse 12. Return sevenfold to the lap of our neighbors, the taunts which with they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will account your praise. How does this psalmist see Israel at that point? As God's sheep. Just as we saw in Ezekiel a, a short while ago. And so the idea here is a complex one. God uses the nations to judge Israel, but he will judge the instruments of judgment. And in doing so, he will also bring back Israel into the land. And that leads us to ask the question, why? Why so many steps? We found our, find ourselves in the shoes of Habakkuk, who goes, wait, God, I don't get your plan. I mean, Israel's bad, but Babylon? It's in this chapter, though, that we start to get a little bit of clarity. And so let's finish up here just so we don't miss the reading here. Verse 6, Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and the hills, the ravines and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I've spoken in my jealous wrath because you've suffered the reproach of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold... I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply people on you, and the whole house of Israel, all of it, the city shall be inhabited, and the waste places rebuilt. Imagine being Ezekiel's audience and hearing this message. Imagine being a survivor of the destruction of Jerusalem, and trying to envision a rebuilding and a restoration of all that was. Verse 11, and I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful, and I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and will do good to you more now than ever. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will let people walk on you, even my people Israel. So he's not just saying it's going to be a fruitful land or an inhabited land, but inhabited by my people Israel. He says, continuing here, and they shall possess you, and you shall be their inheritance, and you shall no longer bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour people and you bereave your nation of children. Now that's a really subtle allusion. Why does it refer here to the land of Israel as a devouring land? That's the accusation of the ten spies. All the way back in the book of Numbers. They go out, they explore the land, and remember Joshua and Caleb say it's a beautiful land, an abundant gift from the Lord. The other ten say this is a land that, in, that eats people. This is a land that devours oddly, because of Israel's unfaithfulness, that actually does come to pass. But it won't be the final word. It won't be permanent. No longer will the land be one that devours. 
Verse 15, and I will not let you hear anymore the reproach of the nations, and you shall no longer be the disgrace of the peoples, and no longer cause your nation to stumble, declares the Lord God. Now, I find when we read this all together, like I said, it fills us with more questions than answers. How is God going to take the same people and get a different outcome? Why did God bring about judgment and then judge the tools of judgment and bring them back into the land? Can we really be so hopeful to go, what happens is Israel finally gets the message, and so God says, all right, I'm done, you can come back now? Look at verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Remember, Ezekiel is a Levitical priest. So God illustrates using stuff he knows. According to Leviticus, when a woman was during her time of the month, she was ceremonially unclean. That doesn't mean evil, but it did it was a status from clean to unclean, and so it had to be set right. And the way that it was set right is that the woman had to stay away from the tabernacle until her impurity was over, and then she just had to take a bath, and she was back in clean status, and she could return. Now, notice that image is helpful here because it basically lays out Israel as being similarly unclean and therefore having to be removed, set apart. But even here, there's a hint of hope, isn't there? He could have chosen permanent forms of uncleanness. And sometimes the Bible does. It compares Israel to a leper that needs complete and abundant and miraculous healing. But here, there's a cadence and expectation of a period of time. Okay. It says, uh, verse 18, So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed to the countries. In accordance with their ways and deeds, I judged them. Justice. Verse 20. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, and that the people said, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. In other words, what is God saying? Because of my character, I had to bring judgment, but it tarnished my reputation. People looked at what happened to Israel and went, I told you God wasn't real. They looked at Israel and went, look, their God isn't strong enough to protect them from the Babylonians. These must be the true gods, the gods of the conquerors. And so, verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations for which they came. I said, so I also need to not just do justice, but set my reputation right. Verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. You see, it's God's commitment to his character that, that removes the veil from trying to understand why he uses Babylon. He has to bring judgment on Israel for the sake of his character, because he is a just God. But he does it in a way that no one else is going to come out of this thinking that anyone else is calling the shots. It is one thing to say, here's how a people were destroyed. But for that same people to be reborn, it's a completely different category. He says, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, 
And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So we've been reading over and over again, so that you, Israel, will know that I am God. But now we see, so the nations will know that I am God. I have turned you over, treated you as defiled, sent you into the nations as a frame of judgment, but I'm going to do something now that will demonstrate my holiness before the nations. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Again, a reference to the clean and unclean, right? I'm going to, I'm going to cleanse you. And you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you. And not only a fresh start, but a new life. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So two images here, both of them of a heart transplant. Okay. But let's look at the second one, a heart of stone and give it a heart of flesh. Israel, instead of being stubborn and calcitrant and resisting the will of God, he's going to do an internal work that will change them entirely to a people who are pliable and obedient. In other words, he's not just going to take care of their past unfaithfulness, but their future faithfulness. He's going to do something new. Side note, when it says in uh, Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, that word there for create is the Hebrew word bara, the same one from Genesis 1-1. Now, if you've ever heard a study on Genesis 1-1, they like to point out that bara means to create ex nihilo, out of nothing. So we asa, in Hebrew, we make, but we make out of stuff we find. We make tree er, chairs out of wood that we gather from trees, but God made the universe out of nothing. The problem is, that's not how bara is usually used in the Old Testament. David doesn't say, asa me a clean heart, O God. He says, create. And here are the two things that bara always does mean. One, it's something only God can do. Only God can bara. David doesn't say, let me make a new heart. He says, God, I need you to do this. And the second thing is, bara always implies something new. If you follow the word just through Genesis 1, anytime we get to something that's completely new, like the creation of plants, that's bara. And then the creation of animals, that's bara. And then the creation of Adam, that's bara. But anything that falls into those categories beforehand is, is asa. He's already done that. So David is asking God to make something new in a way that only he can do. And that's what Ezekiel's talking about here. He's talking not about a work of Israel that's going to set things right, but a work of God that's going to set them right. And so he says here, in verse 26, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so he's going to do something that will make them a new people. Not just give them a fresh start, but a new heart. And so the reason why... God will be holy and the land will be blessed and the nations will know is because God's going to fix the problem that, that was the flaw in the design, the thing that kept the covenant from succeeding earlier on. And we don't have enough time to follow this thread the whole way. But I just want to point this out. In the book of Galatians, as Paul is making his argument, 
You may remember he opened this by warning the Galatians that they're clearly on the wrong track because having begun in the spirit, are they now going to be perfected in the flesh? And when you get to the end of Genesis, he talks about flesh and spirit too. The works of the flesh are evident, but the fruit of the spirit and those who walk in the spirit will not fulfill the flesh, right? That's a major part of Galatians. But here's one that we often miss. When he walks back to the promise given to Abraham, he says that the blessing that God promises Abraham in Genesis 12 is the giving of the spirit to the nations. Now he leaps a few theological gaps to jump from Abraham's promise where the spirit really isn't mentioned. But this is where he goes. This is where he threads the needle through Ezekiel, through Jeremiah 31, through the new covenant. But this is the plan the whole time. Let's keep reading. Verse 28, you shall dwell in the land I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And I'll deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I'll summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and abominations. Now notice that. I would call that good shame. Right? You would think that this would be bound up and you'll say, and you'll forget all about who you used to be. But there's an appropriateness to seeing the way we were in the right and proper light. And that's part of what God's going to do. They're finally going to be able to see how heinous their sins are. But it's not in weighing against the judgment, but it's in weighing against God's grace. We say the same thing when we sing hymns, right? It's when we look at the cross that it pours contempt on all our pride. Right? And pride is more just than I, I am righteous before God, I'm good enough. It's also I will exalt myself. It's also the heart of rebellion against God. That will be dealt with. Verse 32, it's not for your sake I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. It is true that God loves the world. It is true that he's not willing that any should perish, but should all, that all should come to repentance. We just read that in Ezekiel. But God's kindness and his love and his grace stem from something even greater, which is his commitment to be who he really is, which is his commitment to declare to the universe that he is the one and only true good God. His name comes first. In fact, notice this. Verse 33, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I will cleanse you from your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall re be rebuilt and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that was in sight of all who passed by. And they will say, the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. This isn't just a reversal of Israel's fate. It's a reversal of the fall itself. He reaches all the way back into Genesis and he says what God's going to do in Israel is going to be like before there was a curse, before there was death, before there was sin. He says, And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now the fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. 
One of the things that we can get excited about when God says he's going to do something for his name's sake is that it's a trustworthy promise. He says, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And this is what I'll do. Finishing up here, thus says the Lord God, this also. I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like flocks for sacrifices. Now, the idea isn't there, increase them to slaughter them. The idea is as many sheep as you remember on the day in Jerusalem of Passover, right? In the high feast days when everybody is bringing their sacrifices and the streets are filled with sheep. He says it's going to be like that. He says, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of Adam, flocks of people again. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And so the vision is expansive. It's not just of a fresh restoration of Israel, but of the fulfillment of God's desires in Genesis 1. It's big and it's profound. And I would encourage you to go from here this week and open the last few chapters of the book of Revelation and read them in light of the promises we've read about here. And what will you find? You'll find the shepherd with his sheep dwelling in the presence of his people. You'll find a place where all of the awful things have been put outside the doors. You'll find a place where every tear is wiped away, where there is no scorching or hunger or anything anymore. What John sees there is what Ezekiel sees here. in the process all moves through the provision of Jesus. The giving of the Spirit. But remember, the giving of the Spirit isn't the end of the road. What does Paul tell us? That's the down payment of our inheritance. The seal of what is to come. Let's pray. Father, it feels so good to come out the other side of judgment. It feels so good to be again to focus on Ezekiel to um, just your faithfulness, your faithfulness that, that is buried underneath your justice so that when your judgment comes, it's not the end of the story, but it leads to a way that makes clean and a way that gives life and a way that leads to the abundance that you had designed and desired for the world you made. We thank you, Lord, that we know the shepherd personally that we have heard his voice, that we have heard him call our name, that we are the sheep of your pasture. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to call sheep, that your name would continue to be lifted up, and that you would continue to give life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.